Welcome to the Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig and welcome to the Full 60. This is a special bonus episode. If you've been following along, once a month we have been doing a prospect series where I alternate between the two athletic prospect writers, Corey Pronman and Scott Wheeler, and catch up with them, talk to them about what they're working on, what events they've gone to. Um, and it's proven to be people really seem to like it. And people like to talk prospects. They want to know who's coming in the draft. They want to know how the guys in their system look. Um, and nobody is better at breaking that down than Corey Promman and Scott Wheeler. And since Scott and I last talked, let's see, what is it, January? So it would have been in November. A ton has gone on, including the World Junior Championships, a couple top prospect games. He's been releasing his team-by-team midseason rankings, so organizational rankings. Recently, he's been all over the globe. Um, recently returned from Ostrava, Czech Republic, the host city of the World Junior Championships. Great tournament, great opportunity to evaluate players and We get into that. We get into his rankings. We even start off evaluating the prospects in the Taylor Hall trade. There is always something when it comes to prospects and talking about them. So, And that's what I love about this series. So let's jump into that conversation, the most recent episode of the Prospect Series with Scott Wheeler. So, Scott, I have to imagine you, you're you probably a little travel-weary at this point. Like, we're, we're in the middle of the grind. You are at the World Junior. And, and like, how are you holding up? Like, this is this is in the middle of it for you. Yeah, th- this sort of stretch, it's funny because April and March are pretty quiet. I mean, other than uh, under-18 Worlds in April, there's not a lot going on in terms of the sort of major prospect calendar events. So it's really January and February and then obviously May and June as you ramp up towards the combine and all that. Um, but yeah, the, the last few weeks have, have been a lot for me because I was uh, in Nostrava for two weeks. Before that, I actually took a little bit of vacation time with my wife. So I was in uh, Prague for a few days before that. And then as soon as I landed, I was right back into basically every single day cranking one of these articles out. So I, I tried to get the prospect rankings that I'm currently publishing uh, I tried to build a little bit of runway, if you will. I tried to get four yeah. or five of them done before I left, just so that I didn't have to do one a day when I got back. But there hasn't really been a weekend or a break for me yet. So I'm really looking forward to sort of March rolling around because even February is a little busy as well. Yeah, February gets busy. And then then you have mail it in March and then it starts to get really crazy again. <laughs> And so, like, it's and, – and I – you know, February, not to get sidetracked already, but February is interesting from a prospect perspective for me because you start hearing names of these guys in trade talks, right? Like, you mm. have – we've seen last year some, you know, the Mark Stone deal. Like, some of the, some of these prominent guys end up getting moved, and, and all of a sudden you have all kinds of interest in a guy that – from a whole new fan base. Yeah, and that, we've already, I mean, we've already seen that a little bit now in terms of uh, I was doing these rankings and I'd put together all of my lists for for my prospect pool rankings uh, about a month before I left for the World Juniors and obviously there's tweaking that happens in between but suddenly you're deleting three players from Arizona and adding three <laughs> right. players to New Jersey, right? When the when the Taylor Hall trade happened. So we've already seen a little bit of that movement and then there's immediately increased interest particularly from Devils fans in terms of Who's Kevin Ball? Who's Nick Merkley? Who's Nate Schnarr? Um, yeah. So you've got to make sure that you're you're thorough on those guys and that everybody sort of understands and, and contextualizes, are these players good? Are they great? Are they mediocre? Who are they? What might they bring kind of thing? How far away are they? I think that's the most common question I get is it's always about timeline. It's never about yeah. skill set. <laughs> right. And have you released either of those two teams for your, your kind of midseason prospect? I haven't, but they're both right around the corner. Okay. Because I would be curious, how much of a jump, and and Mm -hmm. again, I'm doing this out of order, but how much of a jump does Jersey make when you add three players like that? Because these weren't, I don't think anybody thought these were Arizona's best prospects, but still pretty good prospects. 
Yeah, for me, it was three of their top 10 guys. So you had one kid uh, in the group who was kind of in that four or five range for me, and then two kids who were in the sort of six to 10 range for me. So anytime you subtract three of a team's top 10 prospects and add three top 10 prospects to another team, it's pretty significant. And one of the things that makes me doing this project in January and February interesting is that there aren't the sort of Alexi Lafreniere, Jack Hughes, Kale McCarr, Quinn Hughes level players. There's no Capo Cacos. Um, so there isn't there isn't really sort of clear cut top prospects that can drag a team's ranking up. Um, right. So, w- w- for example, when you see Corey's list every August when he does his, it's heavily influenced by the fact that those top guys next year when he does his, Alexi Lafreniere is going to prop up his team's prospect pool in a significant way. And uh, yeah. I-, I think just by nature of the timing of when I'm doing it, depth plays a larger role. So there actually was a pretty pronounced sort of drop off and increase for those two teams. They both either fell about five or six spots or rose five or six spots. So um, if you're a team in the middle of the pack, suddenly you're in the bottom half. And if you're a team that's in the middle of the pack, maybe you're sort of up closer to 10 kind of thing. So it's right. it's a it's a pretty pronounced shift when you add three players who are maybe not sort of star level prospects, but three sort of quality players to your pool at this time of the year. You know, that's interesting. I, ne- I hadn't considered that when you're, you know, the timing of those release versus when Corey does his, because you're right, it's so influenced by the previous draft because guys haven't, you know, those guys haven't graduated and, and, it, and teams can make a huge jump. All right. And just to stay on the Taylor Hall trade a second, which of those prospects were you most excited about or, would you, or should Devils fans be most excited about included in that deal? Oh, that's a tough one. I believe I had Kevin Ball as slightly higher than Nate Schnarr and, and Nick Merkley. Merkley's yeah. a little bit of a tweener. He's already a very good AHL player, like a not maybe not a dominant sort of star level player in the AHL, but a contributing first or second line player in the AHL. And that normally means that he probably projects as kind of a third line level talent at the next level in the next couple of years, if you can put it all together. And I think Schnarr, you're kind of hoping that he gets to that same point as well. He's had a little bit of a slower start to his pro career, but was obviously an exceptional junior player. Uh, Whereas I think Ball's interesting just because he's got that combination of size. He's younger than the other two, uh, and he can really move. And you you don't see very many (laughs) six foot six, 240 pound players who can actually skate (laughs) at a decent level. So uh, he's not, again, he's not going to be a star level player, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's sort of a, low-end sort of second-pairing guy or a or sort of very good third-pairing guy. Um, okay, so let's let's get at your trip to Ostrava in the World Junior. And um, it's funny because last time I had you on, I, was, I, I made this declaration that Byfield would go number one based purely <laughs> on his position. I, I would like to retract that. What's that? I knew this was going to come up. <laughs> Without having seen either player, I just decided the center was going to go first, and and the performance that we saw in the World Junior Championships was was I I think it I don't know if it ended the debate for all thirty one teams, but you know the people I talked to were like it was one guy was a clear impact star player, and then you know it was kind of the next group. What when you walk away now you have a little bit of time to think about it. What stood out the most about that tournament to you in terms of the prospects? Well, in terms of the draft eligible guys, I think everybody played well, maybe except Quinton. And I, I would preface that by saying that I, I'm not any more down on Quinton Byfield than I was before the tournament. He's almost a year younger than Alexi Lafreniere. Alexi Lafreniere was not noticeable in the tournament a year ago when he was not the same age as Byfield, but close in age to what Byfield was this year. Uh, it, yeah. It's just hard when you're that age and you're playing 10 minutes a night to really make plays. And uh, as right. a result, he was kind of quiet. And he also had to shift from his natural position of center to the wing, which is something he's never had to do. He's been playing center since he was six years old. Um, so so there was a lot going on for Byfield there. But in terms of the other, uh, specifically the draft-eligible kids, everyone played well. And, and you're absolutely right that Lafreniere was kind of an echelon above the rest of those kids. But Tim Stutzla for Germany was a standout. Both of the Swedish kids, Alexander Holtz and Lucas Raymond, were good. Um, Jan Mishak had some moments for the Czechs, and then he has since said that he's coming over to play and has begun playing for the Hamilton Bulldogs in the OHL. So um, it, it was an interesting tournament. You, know, you normally don't get players, at least in, in those kind of prominent roles at that age. Stutzla mm-hmm. is an exception just because Germany's maybe a little bit thinner than some of those other teams. So when you have a star-level player like him, he's going to be 
or have to be an impact guy, but you normally wouldn't see a, a Holtz and a Raymond play in the kind of roles that they did. And that was driven primarily just by the fact that that Swedish team was really, really thin up front. So they kind of had to use those kids more than you would probably expect. So I, I think all of those draft eligible kids played well. And, and that speaks again to just how deep this draft is. It really is nine or 10 sort of star level prospects deep. And normally you only have five or six, maybe even four kids like that in a draft. So uh, they all continued to play well. And that was without Marco Rossi, who will be on the Austrians at next year's event uh, without his participation in the tournament. So it, it was good. So I, I always like the the concept of kind of talking about tiers at the top of the draft. Would you say mm-hmm. it's, if you say there's nine star level players, is it like 1A, 1B, and then two through seven? Or is there like a, another clear cut? I don't think there is a clear cut for me. I have uh, my February list will be coming out in a few weeks, but I have Lafreniere one, Byfield two, and then it's really three to nine in sort of one big group. I could listen to an argument that has Marco Rossi as the third best player in the draft, and I could listen to an argument that has Jamie Drysdale as the third best player in the draft. So um, that will come down to position, I suspect. Drysdale is going to go high just because he's the only top defenseman in that group of nine. Yeah. Um, and then you've also got centers and wings, but Rossi, despite, despite being a center, is a little bit of a smaller player. So uh, I wouldn't really fault teams for passing on one of those guys or taking a leap of faith on one of those guys. And, and this is kind of popped into my head. So last year, you know, clearly teams, and we saw this, I would say, a couple of years ago with Kakaniemi and Hayden and those guys like teams are clearly now saying saying hey this is where I can get my centerman and my defenseman and I still see a lot of you know when we're evaluating prospects a lot of wingers like you said like in that group there's one defenseman uh, so but you and I both know there's probably in the top 10 there's probably going to be at least three right like teams are going to reach because they're like I got to get it this is where I'm going to get my defenseman do you start to adjust your rankings or do you just do you, because you say hey team you know, this is going to reflect how the draft is going to go because teams are going to favor these other positions. Or do you just still say, hey, look, this winger is going to be a better NHL player. I don't I don't care. Yeah, I think in a mock draft format, you can kind of adjust it. But when I'm putting together my rankings, I'm not considering how I think the draft is going to play out or okay. who's going to go where or what team preferences might be near the top. I'm just saying I think Marco Rossi and Stutzel and Lundell and uh, Raymond and Holtz are better as forwards than any of those other top defensemen um other than Jamie Drysdale obviously who's a bit of an exception in this draft but yeah uh, yeah I'm I'm I try at least as best I can to just consider sort of talent and upside and if that means that there's there's no defenseman in my top 10 or there's no goalies in my first round or or what have you then then so be it so based on what you saw at the tournament did you did anybody make a significant shift in your for the draft eligible guys in your rankings Not really. I think they all kind of just reinforced who they are. There wasn't one kid who really grabbed hold of it. Obviously, if there was a kid who went the other direction, it might be Askarov maybe a little. Uh, But again, it's so hard to be a 17-year-old goalie in an event like that. (laughs) Askarov has a great track record. I never thought that Askarov was a part of that tier. I always kind of had him in that 10 to 15 range that followed. Uh, And he's going to be a little bit lower than that on my sort of mid-season ranking here. Um, he's just a little bit of a weird goalie in that he's very jittery in the net. He Most goalies stay set in their stance and sort of push off their edges, and he's always kind of got this little bounce to him where he's bouncing around on the toes of his blades, and he says that it keeps him sort of more engaged, and then obviously he's kind of got a want, or certainly has a wonky glove hand. So uh, there, there are starting to be at least some red flags that pop up with Askarov, but he's still a hell of a goalie and definitely going to be a first-round pick. I don't know. I don't know if I want if my scout coming in and I'm looking at a goalie and two words being used are jittery and wonky. I'm out at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. letting someone else take the goalie. Yeah, and then he's but got a 930 all. save percentage for the last five years. No, I know. I mean, I saw him last year. Like he's he's ridiculous. I I think that to me is the most fascinating thing. You know the the set you know subset story of the draft is where where he's going to go and and. Mm-hmm. And we saw it last year too. Like there was, uh, it, it was um, what's it, you know the kid the uh, Florida drafted the American um, Spencer Knight. It was Spencer Knight. It was the same thing. Like there was, 
there was a point I, I, I was talking to somebody in like November or December. They're like, Spencer Knight could be a top three pick. Like that's how, uh, you know, and then it was like, oh, Spencer Knight's not even going to be top 20. Like it's so wide ranging when it comes to these guys. And from what I could tell, Florida probably is pretty happy where they got him. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. And he's been outstanding as a freshman. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, who knows? But so, all right. So. No significant shift, and that's good. Like you don't want to overreact. Like I already have about you know the, where I think of these players at the top of the draft. Um, but but so I, I, the other interesting thing is because like you said for for the draft eligibles, this is a tough tournament. So you, you really get a good look at the kids who should be performing and and standing out for the guys that, that are drafted players with mm. organizations who who really jumped out to you. Well, I think Trevor Zegers is the easy answer there. Um, yeah. I mean, if, if they win that, that quarterfinal game against the Finns and they go to the semis and that guarantees they're playing in one of the medal round games, um, he, I mean, he's, he's, even if they are in that bronze medal game and, and they, beat that, they beat the Finns in that tough one nothing loss that they took, he's in the MVP conversation regardless. Like, he was yeah. just so good. And I think just the fact that he played five games kept him off the All-Star game and kept him out of the MVP conversation. But uh, in the games that he did play, uh, it, it was unbelievable. He, he started the tournament really on the fourth line, playing eight to ten minutes a night. Um, obviously, had two assists in the opener, and then I think it was four assists in the second game. And he had two assists at the end of the first period in that second game, and he'd only played three shifts. And it was like, like holy shit, this kid is is just doing everything every time he's on the ice. And it wasn't like he was picking up the odd assist on an outlet pass where 30 seconds later a goal gets scored or he was making a six-foot pass on the power play. He was right. making sort of mouth-dropping, jaw-dropping <laughs> right. level plays every time yeah. he was on the ice. And uh, obviously all nine of his assists in the five games were primary and some of them were just magic, like the spinorama pass behind the net and the spinorama pass off the rush and the laser that he threw to Kaliev and... Um, it was just really fun to watch. He was the probably the player who sort of most grabbed everyone's attention. Um, but yeah. he wasn't alone. I, I was really impressed by Victor Soderstrom. I'll, I'll admit, I was a bit lower on Victor Soderstrom in the draft last year. And I thought, like with Barrett Hayton, that uh, the Coyotes picked him a little bit too high. And ultimately, I think with Hayton and Soderstrom, who were two of the better players in the tournament... They just continue to show that maybe that that confidence uh, from Chaika and company in Arizona wasn't misplaced. And Soderstrom was great. He impressed me in particular as a skater. He's a sort of much faster uh, straightaway skater than I remember. And so that certainly come a long way. And then Hayton playing through the injury like he did and as dominant as he was even before the injury and then scoring that brilliant goal with a, basically a bum arm uh, yeah. in the gold medal game. Th- those two Arizona players really, really grabbed my attention. That's uh, that's pretty amazing. How, how concerned should Montreal fans be about Cole Caulfield and his kind of lack of production? I don't think it's a big, uh, a big deal. Again, he wasn't playing in the role that he's accustomed to playing. Uh, people forget that this is often a 19-year-old's tournament and they had a, a lot of that sort of dominant age group from last year included in the roster and that meant that maybe they were going to play a little bit lower on the roster than they're used to and Caulfield was no exception to that and uh, certainly he didn't it it kind of did expose some of the concerns that people had about Caulfield where if he's not playing big minutes and he's not getting a lot of touches he can kind of fade in games and he needs a playmaking center to get him the puck and I mean, he was playing with John Beecher for a little bit there, and John Beecher is not exactly the guy who who you want passing you the puck as as good as he is as a player in other ways. He's not exactly a playmaker, so uh, it just wasn't really a good fit for him. And then uh, they found a a sort of comfort level with their top power play unit that meant that Caulfield wasn't on their top power play unit because Nick Robertson and Shane Pinto were playing so well. Uh, So there was just a lot that kind of contributed to it, but... Uh, when you look at his season in Wisconsin, despite the fact that that Wisconsin team has been a major disappointment in the standings and in the rankings and all of that, uh, Caulfield's been a, a sort of dynamic scorer for them and has been a real factor as a freshman and has kind of had the kind of season that you'd expect out of a top 10 or 15 pick as a freshman. So I think by and large, I'm not too worried about Cole. He's going to be a, an excellent scorer. Um, Trevor Zegers really started on the fourth line. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know you were so set. Americans in the top three lines. Yeah, he started on the fourth line. He played just over eight minutes in that opener. 
Wow. Um, all right. So uh, because I'm in Detroit, I hear a lot of questions about Mort's cider. What did you think of him and the Germans? He was great. I considered right down to the wire, putting him, uh, despite the fact that they were playing for relegation, putting him on my all-star team. I think it was Rasmus Sandin was kind of the clear-cut number one choice for everyone and when the media had to pick their their two defensemen on the last day of the tournament. And then you probably could have had four or five players as the second player to Sandine. You could have had Zemula and Romanov, who ended up being on the team uh, for the Russians. You could have had Soderstrom. And, and I think Sider was right in that group. And obviously, you're able when you play three relegation games against Kazakhstan, you're able to sort of drive your minutes up and drive your shot rates up and, and put up the odd goal and assist and uh, all of that you had to consider when you were sort of evaluating the tournament that Sider had. But when he was on the ice versus when he wasn't on the ice for German for Germany, it was like two different teams. When he was on the ice, uh, it took forever for him to get an even strength goal scored against him in the tournament, despite being in an extremely tough group. Uh, yeah. And he was just so comfortable and poised the whole time and kind of exactly what you expected of Sider. He wasn't dynamic offensively and making a ton of plays, but um, he wasn't hemmed in when he was on the ice like the Germans often were against uh, Russia and Canada and the United States in, in other games. Uh, and in other sort of portions of the game when he wasn't playing. Um, and he just made the smart play all the time. He was good on the power play. He played more minutes than anyone else in the entire tournament. Uh, so it, it was a it was a really good tournament for Sider. He was impressive, for sure. Where do you think he goes? It, like, it, if we're looking at that draft, same spot, like same area? Uh, it's funny because it was like, oh, Detroit reached, and now people are like, oh, yeah, that's that's about right. Yeah, and, and I think I'd still have him uh, a little bit lower than he went, but yeah. I had him in the 20s in my final ranking, so he's he's definitely not a late first-round pick for me anymore. So I think right. he, there's probably a middle ground there where he's uh, maybe around 10 if, if I were to do a redraft rather than sort of where he went at sixth overall. But um, no, there's, there's no question he's had a good year playing huge minutes in Grand Rapids. Uh, followed that up with a good tournament at the World Juniors and and looks like a sort of truly star-level prospect. And, I mean, I, I touched off it off the top, but uh, right now if you were to if I were to put together the, the list that I put together every summer of my top 50 drafted prospects, uh, it's tougher to do now just because, there, like I said, there aren't the Hughes brothers and there's no Kako and there's no Kale McCarr. Right. Um, but if you had to ask me who the best D prospect is outside of the NHL right now, he again, he's certainly in that group of sort of four or five D prospects with Bowen Byram and a few others. So yeah, um, he, he's in that echelon for sure. I heard Romanov has looked great. I, I didn't, that's the guy I don't know a lot about. Yeah. Romanov's an interesting one. I actually had Zamula, the, the other Russian defender as my uh, second defenseman on my ballot, but uh, Romanov okay. was the player who ended up being the, the second defenseman to Sandin on the all-star team. And, He's been always been a dominant player who's played a huge role for Russia uh, against his peers internationally, um, but has never been, at least not offensively, has never been that that kind of player uh, in league play. And that's in part because he progressed to the pro level so young, and it's hard for a kid his age to contribute in the KHL. But even dating back to the MHL and his time in junior, he was never really a dynamic player. And because of that, I've never really been all that high on him. I think he's an excellent, mature defender for his age, and that certainly shows up when he plays against his peers. Um, But I do think there has been a little bit of hysteria in terms of the hype around him. And I do think that there's often sort of people who are too high on him. Um, I, I just don't, he's not going to be a power play guy in the NHL, which limits the kind of upside and the kind of contracts that he'll be able to garner. Um, and so if you're, if you're not that, and you're not really a go-to PK guy, I think he'd be a fine penalty killer. You're looking at a guy who you, you're going to ask to just be a, a sort of really solid, even strength, second pairing defenseman kind of player. And there are certainly other deep prospects that I think can play higher in a lineup than that at their upside. And guys like Sider and Bowen Byram are, are certainly examples of that. So uh, there are there are certainly scouts that think that he's in that tier and that he is one of the better deep prospects in the world. And I like him a lot as a player, but I just uh, I, don't, I don't think he's going to be a star in the NHL by any means. OK, well, I'll pump the brakes with you on that. All right. So any last thoughts on the on the tournament on the World Junior? I mean, it was just a lot of fun. Uh, Ostrava yeah, isn't yeah. Uh, Ostrava isn't the greatest place in the world, but the the actual hockey that was played was was fantastic. It's really is my favorite event on the hockey calendar, including the Stanley Cup Finals. So 
I think it almost always lives up to the hype. The games are exciting. There's lead changes. There's always one of the big five nations that doesn't make the semifinals and makes yeah. for sort of panic from the from the national hockey federations, et cetera. And we saw a little bit of that in post tournament criticism of the that American team. And um, the tournament was just a lot of fun. And and the big players tended to play well, with the exception of maybe a, a players like Caulfield and Turcotte, but. Um, it, it was it was good. It was it was a great tournament and a great event, and that gold medal game was was just a blast. I was really feeling you. You t- I think it was you. You tweeted out something about like trying to find something to eat there at you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. in the middle of the night because I'd been like I Scott Powers and I were at a World Championships one year there and. We found a gas station that was serving like these pizza, and I I almost teared up. Like I was so happy. I was starving. We'd been covering games all day. You know, went out for beer, and then we were walking back to where we were staying and couldn't find anything to eat. And finally found like these these pizzas, and it was like the greatest moment of my life. Yeah, and I, I had a a moment like that where you because there was no sort of restaurants in the rink the the Ostrevar arena is a really old barn so yeah. basically everything that they served was served off of a table so you're looking at chips and pop and beer and that was it you couldn't actually get a meal there and because it took so long for the players to get to the mix zone in between games it was extremely hard to run across to the media hotel and grab uh, sort of lunch or dinner between games if you needed to interview players you basically had to choose either interview players or go eat, or eat. so there were days where i would have <laughs> breakfast at my hotel at, at seven o'clock in the morning and then i wasn't back to my hotel until 11 p.m and uh ostrava is a, a a kind of old steel town where uh, it's that they've fallen on hard times and there's just not a lot going on there everything closes there aren't that very many restaurants in the downtown core uh, and, and it, even on a Saturday night, it kind of empties out. So I actually found a, a Greek place that was a literal window in the side of a building with this guy serving food out of his microwave, basically. Uh, and I had that after one game, and I swear to God, it was the best Greek food I've ever had. <laughs> I know. It's it's amazing. Um, awesome. Well, great job covering it. You guys, you and Corey just killed it. Like the stuff that was coming out of there was awesome. Um and so I want to transition right away because you come back and, I'll, and, and we have these top prospects games. There was one, I believe, in Hamilton for the Canadians and then one just here in Plymouth that I was at on Monday. And I was actually – like people seem to take these pretty seriously. I'm like, oh, this is an all-star game. I'd never been to one. And I couldn't believe it, the the amount of high profile – like there was a good seven or eight GMs in, at the American game. And every top scout, like people were there, like there was some evaluation going on. I'm like, I don't know what you're trying to get from an all-star game, but people seem to take those seriously. Yeah, for sure. And and they kind of bundle all three of the games close together. So there were actually two games in Hamilton last week. There was the CJHL top prospects game, which in the grand scheme of things only has four or five, maybe six or seven players that are interesting. Most of them coming from the BCHL. And that was actually hosted in Hamilton because they try to follow the CHL top prospects game just because they know that all of the scouts will be there and they can kind of make a a two or three day event of it where the scouts fly in and uh, spend some time seeing both games. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It is a a big deal, both of those games in Canada and then a few days later in the United States for the USHL game. And um, yeah, it's... It, they, I think they take it pretty seriously, particularly that CHL top prospects game. Last yeah. year was a bit different just because the CHL top prospects game, honest, quite frankly, didn't have that many great players. Uh, this year is is a completely different story because you're looking at uh, f- at least five or six kids who are going to be in this sort of top nine, that top nine tier I talked about, um, yeah. or, or maybe top 11 or 12. Um, and then just a depth in the CHL this year that they didn't have last year that made it a, a sort of really compelling matchup and something where you can start to say, okay, this kid's separating himself from this kid. And you always want to be careful with sample size and all that, not right. to too much into it. But there were certainly some kids that, that really grabbed everyone's attention. And um, it, there's a scout or a general manager from all 31 teams in the building. So it's a huge statement game for those kids, both for the American top prospects game and the Canadian. So any, when you talk to people or from watching it, any, anything jump out? Yeah, there were uh, at the CHL game. There were a couple of kids. Um, the big one, uh, in my opinion was Jack Quinn, who 
I'm actually working on a story on right now. He's just a fascinating story. He was playing double A right up until his minor midget year. So right up until his 15 year old season, he'd played double A instead of triple A his whole life. And for some Canadian kids, that's just because it's a a long travel distance to get to a triple A team. For him, it wasn't. He's from the Ottawa area and he had literally just been cut his whole life from the triple A team. Um, So he sort of snuck onto the team in his 15 year old season uh, played incredibly well, was a mid-round sort of OHL pick, didn't even make the 67s as a rookie, so he went back uh, and played at the Junior A level the next year. And now he's started the year as probably a sort of projected mid-round pick in the NHL draft and has worked his way into the late first round. And after the top prospects game, where he was arguably the best player on the ice other than Alexi Lafreniere, um, there's people talking about him in sort of that 15 range as a mid-round, mid-first round pick. So Quinn's a kid who's who's really interesting just because he's improved so aggressively so quickly. And then the yeah. other one that, particularly in the Canadian game, was uh, a kid by the name of Tyson Forster who just keeps scoring and just keeps scoring a lot like Kaliev last year, but it doesn't tend to be sort of ranked relative to where his production is because... A lot of scouts have concerns about his skating, which was another one of the big concerns with Kaliev and, and a reason that he fell as far as he did. And the LA Kings got, in my opinion, a steal with him. Yeah. Um, and so Forster, again, this was a big game for him to say, I'm not just scoring a lot in the OHL and scoring a lot, lot for my club team, but I'm also sort of in that upper echelon amongst these players. And he had two beautiful goals uh, as a scorer and, and then also created another with a nice cross team pass. So, I think Forster and Quinn really sort of continued to establish themselves as as legit, and and that's what that game is about for them. And um, in the American game, it was a little bit of a weird one. I watched it on tape after the fact, and I mean, anytime you have a game that's that lopsided in the score, it it's, can be hard to to sort of evaluate those players. Yeah. So yeah, um, it, that that was a little tougher one, just because it it didn't play tight and it was clearly lopsided and the talent wasn't well dispersed. And this is also an well, I don't know if the format for makes game. for a great you know I don't I, like yeah. I, I know it was a new format and I like the idea of it, but I don't know if the actual the way it played out was how you want it. You know, like you said. Yeah. No. No question. And it's been a a little bit of a weird year for the USHL as a whole, too, just because the Chicago Steel kind of have all the talent. And and one of the concerns with a league like that is that uh, too much of the talent ends up in one place and players have preferences over where they want to go. And that influences the USHL Futures draft. And that has, has really been more prominent this year than it has in recent years where it can be hard to evaluate some of those Chicago Steel players. There's top prospects in this draft and in next year's draft on that team. Uh, and it can be challenging to evaluate them just because they're surrounded by so much other talent and they're just kind of running teams over on most nights. So uh, I know that's a concern that a lot of people have about the USHL and, and there wants to people want a concerted effort to sort of spread around that talent and that wealth a hmm. little bit more to make the league a little bit more interesting and uh, give p- more sort of star players room to to operate on their own team rather than sort of stacking a team like Chicago or like Tri City in recent years. So yeah, uh, it'll be interesting to see how the USHL handles that moving forward. So two guys I want to ask you about in the American game um, because I like I was really there just to chat with GMs or whatever. I wasn't watching mm-hmm. all that closely to be completely honest. And I, but the you know the the guy who wins the MVP the one player when you when I would talk to people like who do I need to watch in this game it was Jake Sanderson they're like this mm-hmm. is you know he's he's legit um, and actually he was out like he was hitting people like it was he was out there taking it seems like he was taking it pretty seriously um, where does like where does Jake Sanderson slot and son of uh, Jeff Sanderson if anyone wants. yeah he's been a tough one for me honestly uh, all of those kids with the national development program have been really really hard for me to evaluate this year just because it is relative to last season and and relative to a lot of recent years it's a very weak group yeah. um, and in, actually in my first ranking I believe we talked about this uh, on the first podcast but I didn't have an American on my list until I believe it was the sort of late 20s in my preliminary ranking, and then I had a few guys in the 30s, but that means that I basically wasn't sure that any of those kids were sort of locked to be first-round talents. Certainly there's a few kids that have a chance of doing that, and and you're never going to have a draft where no kid from the national program goes in the first round, so some of those kids will, but Sanderson's the one who... 
certainly has made a, a really strong case for him at, in in kind of that sort of 15 range, middle of the first round range, potentially up because he's a defenseman in the, the sort of top 10, just because uh, as we've touched on a couple times, there there is a sort of lack of high-end uh, defenseman in this draft. But uh, Sanderson's an interesting player just because he he doesn't have that one quality really where it says, oh my God, this kid's dynamic. Like he doesn't skate like right. Quinn Hughes. He doesn't have that big booming sort of heavy shot. Um, he doesn't have the sort of length of a player like Condre Miller. Um, he's just good. Like he's just really, really good. And I believe uh, this could be wrong, but I believe he's also a late birthday. I think he's like a July birthday. Uh, which suggests to me that, that, that there's a lot of room for him to continue to grow and that we might just be beginning to sort of scratch the surface of his talent and his upside. So Sanderson's a kid who has, has really kind of uh, emerged on that team and heading into the year. I mean, you had Matthew Beniers, who's a, a top, a very high-end prospect, but he's not yeah. eligible for this draft. So it was a bit of a weird dynamic on that, on that U18 team. And um, Sanderson's definitely, in my opinion, one of the kids who has kind of risen to the top of that crop. He is. You're correct. He's a July 8th. He's an 02, Jake Sanderson. So late birthday. Um, and the other one, and you, if you don't have an opinion on this, because we're getting like into the weeds a little bit, I just asked because I thought Pat Brisson was there, you know, one of the most powerful agents in this game, in the game, Sidney Crosby's agent, John Tavares's agent, Jonathan Taves. And Brendan Brisson, his son, was is playing. Who's been, you know, putting up good numbers for the in the USHL mm-hmm. with Chicago, like you mentioned, with a, a stacked team. Um, and, and I'm fascinated by that. He, you know, not, he didn't seem he's not a big kid, but he was out there making plays. Do you have a, a, a kind of a projection and where where he slots? Yeah, I think he's in that sort of late first, early second uh, group. Um, again, it, that team is is. Re- quite frankly ridiculous that Chicago team in terms of the talent they have and Sean Farrell's another kid who plays on that team who uh is in that exact same range as as Brendan is but Brendan was in I mean if if you look back at his track record this isn't new he was a a sort of freak of nature dominant player uh at Shattuck St. Mary's last year the top prep school um so he's always kind of been on the radar um but yeah, he's been he's been really good, and and he's kind of fits in that that range where you look at him and you think, does this kid have a chance at being a first line player? Probably not, but might he become a sort of uh, interesting, versatile middle six guy? And and I think that's definitely the kind of upside you're looking at for him. Um, great. All right, and so to to wrap up, you have now been unveiling every single day, like we alluded to a little earlier, your. Your team by team rankings, kind of a mid season look, and um, I, so I don't want to give away anything that's coming in in that. But I, it's always hard because you're starting with the worst prospect, prospect pool. So I'm sure you're just people. How's the response been? I'm sure people just are so thrilled when you're like, "Hey, here's the number thirty one <laughs> team, everybody." Yeah, it's been mixed. There's the, there's two common, well, three common reactions. One of them is. That's sort of how dare you our prospects are better than this the other is but think about the other is and i get a good kick out of this a little bit is but think about all of the young players we have in the nh in the nhl so you get teams that i had near the bottom of the list like columbus and they say we've got tessier and and mill bemstrom and zach wrensky and dubois all these kids are are sort of under 23 players which technically would mean that if they weren't in the nhl they would meet the criteria for my ranking and uh, I try to caution those fan bases that every team has good young players. There isn't a team in the league that doesn't have a good under 23 or two or three players uh, also at that level. So I, I yeah. think you're still on kind of even playing field. I mean, the Calgary Flames, who finished near the bottom of my ranking, they've graduated basically four four young defensemen in the last year, uh, plus Andrew Mangiapane and Dylan Dubé. And um, so there's the, every team has that. So you, you've right. got to kind of caution sort of fans as they get tunnel vision but then the other positive react if there's a positive reaction that you get towards the bottom of the rankings it's a quite common refrain that i've heard from most teams and it's nice to see that their fans are are sort of realists about it it's the old well at least we're not last kind of thing so um (laughs) i've had a few fan bases where it was like huh i was actually expecting us to be even lower than this so 
Um, it, it, yeah, that will certainly change. I would imagine that the the tone I get in the, in the comments as we progress towards the top ten here will be different. But it's been a lot of fun, and and I really, I mean, I love our comment section and engaging with people. And uh, by and large, I think we have an extremely intelligent sort of dialed in audience. So that part of it's great. The one red flag I would say if you're a Columbus fan. So the you've released you're at 22 as we record and a couple you know another one will probably come out before this comes out, but the teams at the bottom tend to have a Stanley Cup in their recent years, right? Like you have the the Bruins were knocking on the door, and of course they have theirs from a few years ago, the Capitals, the Penguins, the Blues. So you're sitting if you're a Columbus, like so those fans can sit there and go, well, we may be number 28, but we've got a couple Stanley Cups. If you're if you're the Blue Jackets, like that's. That's the hard one. It's like, okay, we, yes, we, maybe we have a young team, but you know, that's, it's, you don't have that to fall back on. That that would be a little scary for me. Yeah, for sure. And part of that's driven by just how all in they went last year, which you almost have to laugh at, but you almost have to respect as well, just because you rarely see teams just say, we're just going to go for it. And Columbus did that last year and credit to I defend that by the way, I'm in, I'm in favor of that. Yeah, it, it made for... You knew, they knew Bobrovsky and Panarin were leaving, so when are you going to have that much potential star power again for a while? Make, you know, shoot your shot. I like that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And now you're going to start to see the consequences of that on the prospects yeah, right. and yeah. on the accumulation of young talent, which uh, if if you if you're really high on Bemstrom and Tessier and and Wierenski and, and Dubois, then maybe you come out of it okay and you're able to sort of spend some more money and acquire some other players, but it's obviously a tough market to sort of bring top talent to. So they're in a bit of a weird a weird spot now. Um, so I, you know, they've got a couple young goalies too. Like they're, they're, they still seem to find players, even, you know, they, they seem to do okay in, in Columbus. What, is there any team in this bottom tier, let's say your bottom 10, that, fans should be concerned about because there's some combination of just completely missing on picks or, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, is there a team that you're sitting there going, boy, if you're a Sharks fan, not only are you already in the bottom here, you don't have your first. Like that to me is a little concerning. Yeah. The Sharks were the, when you sort of started mentioning that the Sharks were the first team that kind of came to mind just because their pool is not only uh, sort of thin in terms of top end talent, there is decent depth there. There's seven or eight sort of intriguing prospects there. Um, but the, the kid at the very top is arguably the most polarizing prospect in hockey and Ryan Merkley. And now yeah. they're a bad team this year that should have had a top pick and they won't. So they're not going to be adding to Merkley and they're going to be even more reliant on the fact that they took a swing on him and his talent. And now he's got to work out for them or they're not going to have much of anything coming. And uh, the other thing about them was that a lot of the kids in that group of seven or eight sort of interesting players that I talked about are knocking on sort of uh, leaving the criteria for my ranking, if you will. They're, that my criteria is that they're under 23 and they're not in the NHL. And a lot of the sort of decent players that um, that San Jose has are, are 22-year-olds. So it just speaks to the fact that there isn't a lot of sort of 18, 19, 20-year-old talent there. And, and that can be a major issue for a team that has a lot of money tied up in some good players and will need cheap depth to sort of figure things out and, and patch around the edges as they move forward and try to get back on the rails. Um, the one I was a little bit interested in is the Islanders. Cause I remember a couple you know, they had those first round picks and I was like, Holy cow. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, they, I felt like guys slipped to them. It all played out great. And they're a little lower than maybe I would have thought just based on kind of that peripheral thought. And, and I think part of that is a guy like Wallstrom, who hasn't necessarily been the player that we thought in that draft. Where where are you at on I know he was number 1 on on the list for the Islanders, but what's the concern level there? Like where are you at on him? Yeah, he's he's a tough one. I'm in hindsight I was too high on him. He's one of the players who if I look back at my last 6 or 7 years of of sort of doing the draft and and doing it full time, he's one of those kids where I think damn, I was I was too high on him. I actually had him 5th overall. Um, yeah, in his draft, and and he's nowhere near that kind of a sort of talent right now. And the thing with him is that, uh, and it's the same. Honestly, it's quite frankly, it's the exact same problem they've had with Kiefer Bellows, another player they used a first round pick on who hasn't quite panned out yet, like they'd hoped. Um, and the problem with the, both of those two players is that while they're extremely talented with the puck and they have excellent shots and they scored a lot of goals uh, against their peers growing up, 
Um, they never really, in hindsight, they never really had the other qualities that you need. And we often hear, and I wrote about this in the ranking, but we often hear about goal scoring is the hardest thing to do. And we have to place a premium on goal scorers. And I think in recent years that has bit a lot of teams. I, when I look at players like Owen Tippett and Jake Vertanen and uh, Kiefer Bellows and uh, Oliver Wallstrom, this isn't to say they're bad players. I think all four of those players are NHL players. Obviously Vertanen already is, but they were in hindsight probably taken three, four, five, six picks too high. Um, and I think that's just driven by the fact that they didn't have a, the skating that you need to be able to get into the same spots that they got into in junior and B, the, the ability to use their line mates. And that creates a little bit of a one-dimensional player. I think all of those players to very varying degrees can tunnel vision a little bit too much and try to do too much with the puck. And when they're not scoring, they're trying to sort of dangle their way into spots where they can score. And then things just compound and get worse. And uh, you really need to be able to not only skate, but but sort of be aware on the ice and, and have a sort of playmaking knack as well. And uh, at the challenge with, with those two Islanders players is that they, they have struggled to A, develop a sort of speed off the rush and, and B, to uh, use their line mates more effectively than they do. So that has created a, a little bit of a weird dynamic for both of them. And I still think Bellows is going to be a sort of fine complementary player. And I still think Wallstrom has a chance to be more than that and has a chance to be a sort of good second line scorer who can... Uh, do some damage on the power play. I think he's still going to be a good player, but they're certainly, they haven't progressed like you probably would have hoped. Right. So philosophically, and I was uh, talking, I was at a Red Wings game with Max Baltman, who he he did, he did a top 20 prospect list for the Red Wings fairly recently. And I, w- I was just going over it and we were debating and talking about his list as, as you tend to do with lists. And we were talking about Giovanni Smith, who's, you know, who's been, you know, he's up now, who uh, playing with the Red Wings has a role as you know looks like an NHL player but you're not going to sit there you know physical player but you're not going to sit there and say okay this guy's you know a future star or even you know a top top 6 player necessarily but he had him I would say fairly high and the debate was he's like well look this guy is like we're seeing him he's already he's an NHL player so you you can you have to rank him or if you're going to say you almost have to rank him higher than somebody who you're not sure is who but maybe has a higher ceiling and I thought that, and we were just debating that. Like, is that is that how we should be looking at this? Like, if this, if if you're sitting there going, this guy is for sure a third or fourth line NHL player, is he a better prospect than somebody who maybe is a top two line player, but or maybe won't make it at all? Philosophically, when you're doing these, like, how do you settle those settle those bets? I tend to lean a little bit in the other direction. Um, I, I tend to lean towards upside and ceiling and how good I think a player might be and where he projects in the lineup. And I tend to take uh, sort of swings in terms of my ranking and take a yeah. little more chances in terms of, uh, say, Smith is already a fourth line sort of depth player in the NHL, but you've got Robert Mastro Simone, who you think might have a chance at also being that kind of player, but also maybe has a little bit of upside to his game that might help him become sort of a middle six contributing right. guy rather than a bottom six uh, sort of complementary guy. So I, in a case like that, I'll lean towards a player like Master Simone. Um, but it, it, it's tough because then you leave yourself open to making mistakes and it, it, it can be tempting to just take the guy who's a little bit more of a certainty and maybe take the older player, the kid who's... 22 and you already have an extremely good sense of what he is versus the kid who's 18 where there's a lot that's going to change and could go in either direction for him over the next couple of years um so yeah it's a it's there's no question it's a tough balancing act and something you have to constantly juggle i tend to sort of lean upside and lean can this guy does this guy have a chance to play higher in a lineup rather than lower even if the risk of that happening for him is maybe a bit higher than a, a sort of safer a more athletic player like a Smith who just skates so well and uh, competes so well along the boards and all that, that, that he is probably going to be an NHL player regardless of his tools in, in terms of his offensive skill set. All right, last thing, because we're already pushing, we're already longer than we need to be here. But we, I, I was reading the other day in our fine publication that Quinn Hughes is the best player from the 2018 draft, which I'm glad we've settled that already. And I wanted your opinion. We're... Are we are we ready to make that declaration that Quinn is has I, I mean obviously I'm I'm tongue in cheek a little bit because we're only two years removed but has he moved himself 
like are we comfortable saying hey look this guy may be the best player in this draft oh uh, I'm not sh- completely sold on that. I still think that Dowling and Svechnikov have a chance to be better players. I still think Dowling will have the better career. Um, but Hughes is is right in that group. And I had yeah. Hughes bouncing between third and fourth overall in that in that group all year. And I believe he finished fourth on my list. But in hindsight, yeah. he's probably a clear three. Um, yeah. And if not a clear three, he's in that one-two conversation. I mean, Svechnikov's having an unbelievable year. <laughs> Svechnikov's and- been great. Yeah, <laughs> and Dalene did something last year that I mean he's he hasn't taken a huge leap forward this year, but Dalene did something last year that no eighteen year old has done in decades. So uh, those are certainly the the sort of clear cut top three. I mean you've got some interesting players in Cut Kinyami and Boquist has shown signs and Barrett Hayton looks like he's going to be a good player and there are some other interesting players, but I I do think there's an echelon. Obviously Kachuk has had a fine career in Ottawa so far. So um, there are, there are some interesting players there, but I, yeah, I definitely think it's going to be a conversation long-term between Dalene, Svechnikov and Hughes. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how quickly Quinn, you know, to his credit and to Vancouver's credit, but I, you know, I don't, I know you and Corey were both like that whole draft. Like we just, you were like Quinn Hughes, this guy needs like it's not a surprise, right? Like this guy was, you know, in terms of his talent, his skill level was consistently in that same conversation. So it was, it, well, it was, it seemed like it was Darlene and then the next two. Yeah. You know, it was like Darlene was, there was, I don't remember a lot of debate about anyone going number one besides Darlene. No. And I had Svechnikov as a clear two, but I, yeah. I felt in, in throughout that year that there was another sort of small tier. And that's when I go back to this year in the top nine, in that draft, I felt like there was only four players of that quality, and it was Dalene and Svechnikov at the top, and then Zadina and Hughes in a, and in sort of their own little tier. And Zadina yeah. has not gone in completely south, but certainly doesn't belong in in that group with Hughes and Svechnikov anymore. So, um, yeah, Hughes was Hughes was always <laughs> always going to be a stud, though. Like he, you look at him. How many players in the NHL, even at his age right now, how many players can skate like he can? And it's a list of five or 10 guys probably. So he's already one of the more dynamic skaters in the league. He's extremely smart with the puck. And the concern with him was about one, his size and two, the fact that he's not really a shot threat and he's never really had a a dangerous shot. Um, But shot threats in terms of things I value in a defenseman is not high on my list. And I always felt like he was a really mature defender for his age. And he actually defended extremely well with his feet and he played tight gaps and there were some qualities there that you really liked about his ability to escape pressure and, and be a sort of zone exit machine and just spend all of his time on offense. And uh, we've seen that in the NHL for sure. He's been unreal this year. And I think he's now put himself right in that conversation with Makar for rookie of the year. Awesome. Well, Scott, thanks for doing this again. Let's just wrap this podcast up right here. Um, thank you for hopping back on here. A lot has happened since we last talked. There's going to be even more so. I'm going to get you on, I think, in March. So we'll, we'll get you right in the middle of your and mailed in March. So you'll have a little breathing time and we can let let some of this sink in. But thanks for doing this, Scott. And, and thank you, everyone, for listening. And I uh, look forward to the next one. Cheers. Pleasure as always.